Hi there. This is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation, and this is the Space for You podcast. Conversations with the diverse men and women who are part of today's space community and making amazing things happen. Today, we're joined by Dr. Jack Gregg, author of the forthcoming book called The Cosmos Economy. Dr. Gregg has held leadership positions in public and private education, including serving as Associate Dean of Graduate Programs at Loyola Marymount University, Assistant Dean at the University of California, Irvine, and Cal State Long Beach, as well as the University of California, Riverside. He's also served in corporate learning, working for Northrop Grumman as their founding dean for their space sector corporate university, as well as the not-for-profit sector as he served as the executive director for the California Space Authority. Dr. Gregg has taught graduate classes as a visiting and adjunct professor on leadership, operations management, organizational behavior, marketing, talent management, and international marketing. He's consulted with companies and organizations on such topics as strategic planning and organizational change and written a number of articles and book chapters on management topics. Dr. Greg, it's great to have you join the Space for You podcast. Very excited to hear your thoughts on the space economy, but what you term the cosmos economy. Hey, Rich, thanks so much for inviting me here today. I'm really excited to talk to you about the cosmos economy. Well, we're excited to hear about that. And in fact, that is a great way to start that. You're talking about the cosmos economy. What is that, and how do you define it? Well, to level set the conversation, I I, I think it's it's a good idea to think of the cosmos economy as uh, simply my research findings about the future industrialization of our solar system. Uh, To be clear, this is a little bit different from an examination of our current commercial space activities in LEO, you know, communications, data collection and analytics, launch mission control, space tourism, even economic development opportunities in spaceports. The cosmos economy is different. It's the future economic development beyond LEO. It's the economic engine for establishing space settlements. The project really started because I was concerned when I heard that some very smart people talk about the future of space, and they talked about it as almost like a fully formed, fully functioning economic system. But, you know, that's not how business and economics works. Visions don't suddenly appear out of nowhere. They happen in gradual stages, successes and failures and ups and downs. The more questions I asked, the more frustrated I became. I wanted to know, what are the industries that will thrive in space? How will space business differ from Earth business? How will the cosmos economy impact Earth's industries and economy? When will all this stuff start to happen? And how will investors and entrepreneurs know they're on the right track? Maybe we can answer some of these questions as we we chat today. When I tried to find out what the future of space economy would look like and how it would come about, no one could really give me an answer, and that's how my research started. So there's a difference between what we call the space economy and the cosmos. Uh What is that? Well, the starting point is really the cosmos economy started – with the with the space race in some regard, right? So as you recall, the U.S. was in a uh, space program was in a competitive space race with Russia. There was a need for private industry to provide goods and services and build rockets and payloads. And industry had the technical expertise, and the government had the money. So independent contractors quickly realized that there was a market for building satellites, providing support services, and so forth. And this need 
ultimately launched today's commercial space sector. Today, commercial space is a global business serving customers on Earth. Tomorrow, the cosmos economy will serve customers throughout our solar system. But the critical inflection point for the cosmos economy really hasn't occurred yet. That's most likely going to happen when producers and customers are all located in space, an independent economic engine in space. Today, commercial space is an extension of our global economy. Tomorrow, the cosmos economy will look at Earth as just another marketplace. We're still on the runway to that first inflection point, which may come as soon as the 2040s or so by some projections. The bad news, Rich, is that there is lots of inhibitors and speed bumps along the way. First of all, you know, there's no customers in space right now. And there's a, an undeveloped or non-existent infrastructure at first, and that has to be built out. Early movers will have to vertically integrate the supply chain, and that's pretty costly. And then there's kind of a little bit of an elephant in the room kind of thing with the down mass problem, as Dylan Taylor of Voyager Space calls it. This may be actually the critical inflection point. Uh, and it turns out that technology has really yet to provide a, a good solution to bringing megatons of manufactured goods from space down to Earth markets. Uh, and by way of comparison, right here in Southern California, where I live, the Port of Long Beach ships about 154 million tons annually through their port. And there's dozens of ports like that around the planet, right? We need a similar capability to support a space-based manufacturing industry. And, and in fact, just to kind of close out on this thought, demand will define the growth vector of the cosmos economy. So if we can solve that down mass problem and we can get stuff from space-based manufacturers down to Earth, then Earth consumers are going to define what's manufactured in space. But if we can't solve that problem, then the manufacturing in space is going to serve space-based industrial uh, customers and clients. So that's, that's kind of the, the uh, starting point for all this. So are the drivers for the space economy, will those be the same for the cosmos economy? Well, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I think there's three ways to look at the drivers uh, for the space economy. Uh, there's economic drivers, there's social drivers, there's political drivers. I'm going to take them very briefly one at a time. You know, economic drivers, I think, are very, very similar to the traditional business objectives of seeking profit, building market share, uh, building a company with long-term sustainable competitive advantage, those types of things. As to the social drivers, that gets a little bit more subtle. Those are reflected in some of the various visions that people have about space settlement. Um, one vision is Elon Musk's vision. It's really not his, but he, he kind of personifies it, where space settlement is a lifeboat, more or less, for, for our planet in trouble, an escape plan for a toxic, increasingly uninhabitable planet. Right? Bezos's vision, Jeff Bezos's vision, and others say, gee, maybe it's best we look at space as an opportunity to move the toxic industrial activities into space, remove them from our planet so we can let our planet heal. That's sometimes called a fallow field approach, right? And then there's kind of another vision that has emerged from a lot of conversations I've had with people that is not utilitarian like the first two. It's just simply that it's humanity's destiny to go to space. And so, so those are kind of a, an overview of the social drivers. The last driver, the political drivers, have dominated space activities. There was the old U.S.-Russia space race competition. 
And now there's the current U.S.-China space race competition. You know, Dan Golden, uh, the former NASA chief, uh, just a few months ago in October said that we're in a space race with China, whether we like it or not. And so, um, like most human endeavors, the primary drivers boil down to profit and power. Over the past several years, the space economy has really taken off to where the Space Foundation Space Report assesses the space economy, the global space economy, at $424 billion. And what's happening today has also been described by some as a new renaissance with forecasts of a trillion-dollar economy by the end of the decade. Now, you've been an educator, you've been a practitioner, and you've certainly been an observer. I'm curious to hear, what do you see as the causes and conditions that are unfolding, that are allowing this promising era of a big space economy to occur? Wow. So that's a really good question. So one of the major issues is that space is now simply recognized and accepted as a legitimate business opportunity. Venture capital firms, you know, think of Space Angels or Space Fund, for example, private investors, corporates, uh, corporations seeking to expand their markets and so forth are all very interested in this new opportunity and are thinking about how they can play in space. Several mainstream studies, uh, for example, a study by Merrill Lynch, uh, Bank of America, a uh, study by Goldman Sachs, and even a study by the U.S. Department of Commerce project the value of the new space economy to somewhere in the neighborhood of about $3 trillion in just about 20 to 25 years. But for me, the interesting trend, according to Bryce, is that the growth of non-U.S. space enterprises, those are enterprises that are uh, about space that are offshore from the U.S., is up about 61%. That's, that's a huge jump. And the growth of non-space firms in the space sector, firms that you wouldn't normally associate with space or aerospace, is up 65%. It's not the U.S. space firms who are building the space business. It's a global element. And finally, back to China again, their very aggressive state-funded effort seems to scare a lot of people, and let's call that motivate people, <laughs> uh, to really to play in this space. Nobody wants to be left behind in the new space economy. So does it matter where a business operates in the space economy? I mean, is it better for... Uh, a space business to, say, operate in Texas versus California, or is the U.S. a better place to do a commercial space enterprise versus other countries around the world? I mean, I mean where are the best places to operate in the space economy? And will that be well, any different with a cosmos economy? You know, Rich, I, I, th I think without sounding cute, the best place to conduct space business is in space. Unfortunately, for the time being, there aren't any customers there, as we said a little bit earlier. So today's space companies have to focus on Earth-based customers to generate revenue to keep their operations going. But over time, as commercial operations and space settlements are established in space, the economic activities and core customers are going to shift off-planet. In a century, give or take, or even much less, the cosmos economy is likely to challenge Earth's central role. So it won't be Earth at the center of this cosmos economy, it'll be other players, right? Just as Britain was eclipsed by American economic influence, I don't know, last century or so. As to the best places here on Earth to conduct space business, it's a classic case, really, I think, of balancing 
access to capital, access to high-impact talent, access to customers and your suppliers while managing your overhead costs and taxes uh, as best as you possibly can. And so you have to go wherever you can get the best deal from local governments and local communities, sometimes in terms of tax breaks and, and other givebacks that make it attractive. So the best place to run a space business is wherever you can really maximize your return for your investors. You've had the experience of working on the state level with the as the executive director of the California Space Authority to help it become a place where entrepreneurs and established enterprises can grow their business. Since that time, we've had ne nearly a dozen or so states stepping forward to create their own spaceports. Now, is this a prudent play on their part, or is it really a leap too far at this point? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think hmm, I think one way to view spaceports is, uh, well, in the short term and the long term. Let me take it that way. In the short term, regional spaceports are... Uh, are a localized economic development play. So think of it this way. Local economies want to attract tech firms because tech firms create jobs that attract high-paying STEM labor, and the STEM labor force moves into the community and supports local merchants, pays taxes, and all that's good for the local economy. This is kind of sort of the Silicon Valley economic development model. But there's limits to this model, right? This is fundamentally a real estate property management model with a space theme looking for tenants to pay rents and taxes and to boost the local economy. In the long run, right, there may be little to differentiate one spaceport from another except geographic location, right? Um, also, there's, there's an upward limit to the number of spaceports that an economy can support, especially in the short term. If the plan is to have a legitimate port, like an airport or a seaport with lots of cargo and passenger traffic, then there's no clear sustainable market in the near term. First of all, space tourism may prove too expensive for a mass market in the long run, right? The price tag on space tourism is pretty high right now. Uh, and the, the whole issue about space cargo shipments down to Earth is still a technical challenge. We just talked about that down mass problem. Right now, I think there may be an oversupply of space sports uh, that won't really match demand for some time to come. So as you talk about these spaceports becoming as you describe it, economic development authorities for particular communities. I, I'm curious, what role do you see governments playing in the development of what you've described as the cosmos economy? Uh, th this is a really great question. This is a key question. Uh, in fact, I, I devote a section of my book to how the cosmos economy is going to be adopted over five gradual phases, right? And by the way, that's based on Everett Rogers' work and how innovation is adopted. And, and the five phases are real, real quickly. One is the innovation phase, which I call the frontier phase, and it's followed by number two is early adopter, then ma early mainstream, late mainstream, and then the lagging adopter, which is really the maturity end of the curve. I describe how each of these phases matches with an appropriate business model. But to answer your question more directly about government's role in developing space, uh, in the early innovator phase, right, the frontier phase of development, government can offer a range of assistance, right? The most obvious is to engage in public-private partnerships. This is where government subsidizes infrastructure projects, industry provides the expertise. This is, in fact, how five of the six transcontinental railroads were built back in the 19th century. This is how our space program was launched. So there's a lot of utility to something like that. Further, down the road, government can continue to support 
with incentives like uh, preferential payload contracts, tax and tariff breaks, dual use of launch and terminal facilities, those types of things. Continuous expansion over time, deeper and deeper into the solar system with more and more uh, new frontiers means that there may be a perpetual role for government subsidizing and participating in the early stages of all this development. The long-term goal, however, I, I think is to remove government uh, from the equation so that business can ultimately operate on its own. Is there a particular company or industry that you think is doing a better job in shaping today's space economy marketplace? Hmm. Uh, I, I really like that question. Uh, it gets to the heart of the cosmos economy. Keep in mind that the cosmos economy beyond LEO will continue to create new frontiers in the solar system, as we just mentioned, right? As companies and countries keep going further and further into the solar system in search of new economic opportunities. In due time, though, economic activity in the solar system is sure to eclipse our current global economy on Earth, right? So just focusing on earlier phases of adoption, we discussed, for example, the frontier phase and early adopter phase. Some of the earlier economic opportunities would be uh, infrastructure build-out, transportation, logistics, energy generation, mining and refining, manufacturing, and surprisingly, uh, not often talked about real estate uh, because there's people who are going to want to go out there, but they won't be able to have their own facilities, so they have to get them from somebody in terms of industrial, real estate, residential, office, retail, distribution, and so forth. The firms that do the best job sustaining themselves in the space economy will have to be nimble and be able to adopt. You know, um, Rich, I think a really good example is was just in the news recently where BioNTech, a, a pharmaceutical based in the UK, uh, and partnered with uh, Pfizer, and they pivoted their entire company to working on the COVID vaccine and were successful. So the ability to pivot and adapt to situations is a critical issue. Some of today's companies that I think are going to represent tomorrow's cosmos economy, oh, uh, Caterpillar, Rio Tinto Mining, the world's largest mining operation, Bechtel, one of the world's largest construction firms, Bigelow, then there's the pharmaceuticals we just talked about, and then there's a whole host of other companies that we could get into at, at some particular point in time. You use the phrase that I think we've heard so much in the year 2020 of pivot and adapt. I'm curious, in thinking of those two phrases, there are lots of important parts of a business plan. But in the cosmos economy, what are going to be the most critical components that need the most attention for that enterprise to succeed? Well, hmm. business planning in a... Uh, for a startup is a little bit different than business planning for a going concern. But still, I, I think there's some common elements that apply to your question, Rich. Certainly, it's important to know who your customer is. You have to have a really good pulse of what the demand and the p potential demand is all about. But I think the most important part of a business today is to have a good plan B. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, old business plans used to be incredibly rigid and inflexible. Uh, and when we used to teach them in business school, you know, you'd, somebody would turn out a phone book business plan. But today, right now, there's a lot of opportunity for, for uh, kind of ducking and weaving and, and, and going in, ultimate, in different directions depending upon where the market takes you. And I think that that's a critical element. Investors want to know if you can make it work when things go bad, so that ability to be flexible becomes really critical. 
The next most important element, I think, um, is to maintain and build solid relationships with your investors and your suppliers. So when you have to pivot to plan X, they'll be there when things kind of get tough. Next important, I think, is to build a balanced team. You don't want all tech people on your team. You don't want all finance people on your team. You don't want all marketing people on your team. You want a really good functionally balanced team. And that'll help you through the the growth phases of the organization. And finally, and we've been talking about this, flexibility, the, uh, the kiss of death for a lot of young companies is inflexibility and inability to kind of go with the changes in the marketplace. So I, I think that that kind of is really what a business plan is about today. So when you talk about that marketplace, economies always need capital to operate, but more than that, they need workers. What has your study and experience told you about the skills and jobs that are going to be the most in demand for the cosmos economy? I, I got to tell you, Rich, that's a great topic. This, this is really where my inquiry ultimately started with trying to find out what the critical capabilities are going to be that, that are needed for space enterprises. And so when I started to go out and started to talk to people and I asked industry leaders, you know, what would people actually be doing all day in space so that I could try to get a, a sense of what the capabilities were that they needed to have, no one seemed to have a good answer to that. After a while, this started to concern me because I, I was concerned that, A, I was asking the wrong questions, B, no one had really thought about it before, or C, there was something going on that I just didn't understand. Well, as it turns out, there's a little bit of all of the above. The answer turned out to be that there won't be a large human workforce in space, at least for the initial phases of development, because frankly, robots are going to be doing most of the labor. They can work 168 hours a work week. There aren't any more hours in a week than 168. People have trouble doing that. But a small cadre of people will be in space, right? They'll be uh, there to provide proximate human oversight, managing remote teleoperations, for example, that type of thing. But the, the heavy lifting is going to be done by robotics and automation. So human jobs in the cosmos economy will most likely require skills and competencies in a different set of areas, areas like analytics, program management. Now, when I say program management, some people just jump to coding skills. No, it's, it's really the skills to manage the coders, logistics, uh, people with uh, competencies in EQ or emotional intelligence. Are you able to maintain a good long-term working relationship for a very long period of time in space? Organizational leadership, the art of command and control is still critical, problem solving and so forth. You know, on that list, a lot of those skills and competencies are really soft skills, so to speak. Turns out these are kind of the hard skills for technical folks, but they're really critical, I think, for the cosmos economy. I'm going to have a little fun with you here and pose a little bit of a curveball question. Uh, and, and draw on. Uh, I'll draw on some um, Hollywood lore, uh, in particular the classic film The Graduate. Uh, I assume you've uh seen Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. great film. Well, let me t there's a scene in the movie when the character that's played by a very young Dustin Hoffman is questioned about his future. And before he can answer, he's ushered outside to the pool by a family friend who has only one word for him when it comes to his future. And he leans over to Dustin Hoffman and he says, plastics. 
and proceeds to encourage the young Dustin Hoffman to focus on that area for his future. I want to put you in a very similar situation because there are a lot of young people out there who have an interest in being a part of the space economy. If you could put your arm around any one of them, either poolside, launchpad side, or wherever, and give them one word or possibly two word description as to where they should direct their future, what would it be? Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, The Graduate was a major film in my ill-spent youth. And I remember that scene. And I also remember a bunch of other scenes, which are maybe for another day. But it turns out, it turns out there are a lot of, quote unquote, plastics opportunity in the cosmos economy. It's, uh, it's full of something like that. So the, the key, I think, uh, is to go with your strengths. And let me spend a half a second on this. I require all my management students to take the Strength Finder assessment. It's based on really solid Gallup research, and it's a perpetual uh, item on the Wall Street Journal's weekly bestseller list of business books, and it's used by corporations all over the place. It's a good way to start a conversation with yourself about where you want to take your career and who you are and how you define your personal success. Companies often ask about strengths in their hiring process, and these are the strengths they're referring to. So if they say, gee, what's your strength? And you say, well, I'm a really good poker player. That's not what they're asking about. This is about capitalizing on strengths, not, not fixing your weaknesses, which is a different approach. And so the Cosmos economy is a great ground floor uh, and, and greenfield opportunity for women and unrepresented minorities seeking a new career. There's just a lot of opportunity there. If you want to succeed in the new space business economy, then learn as much as you can about how business works and how you works. So as to the plastics answer, let me circle back and say, find a specific space industry category to specialize in that matches your core strengths. So when you take this assessment, you're going to get a list of about three to five top strengths. Find something that matches up with that because that's how you're going to define your success. It won't be a consumer-based economy for some time, so focus more on things like infrastructure and B2B or business-to-business opportunities like, oh, I don't know, transportation, habitats, life support systems, and then some more broad areas like management, banking, and finance marketing and sales operations, logistics, supply chain, all those types of things. Remember, there's no master plan for space. There's no, there's no hidden agenda for where space is going to go. It's making itself up as it goes along. So if you're the type of person who's okay with risk and is creative and is super ambitious, then space is a perfect career for you. Commerce on Earth has treaties, it has laws, and it has regulations that guide and shape its operations. Is there a framework for the cosmos economy that you see doing the same? Or is there a new construct that you see taking shape that will shape its operations? And who gets to call those shots? Countries or commercial actors? Uh, this is a tough question. I'm a little, I have a little bit of cynicism in how I'm gonna answer this question for you, Rich. I've repeatedly asked about policy enforcement and sanctions without a lot of success at conferences and space industry presentations. Uh, there's uh, some very well-intentioned space policies, laws, accords, but there's no clear enforcement recourse or sanction authority in space. 
And when I ask about that, people kind of give me a blank look or change the subject. So, for example, will the cavalry come to your rescue if claim jumpers invade your tiny prospecting operation on a distant asteroid? Uh, Not very likely. Will workers on a distant deep space company outpost have recourse if their human rights are abused by their employer? Maybe not. Will laws be fairly adjudicated throughout the civilized solar system? If so, by what means? So far, there's no clear or reliable answer to these questions. I think, frankly, Rich, as as companies and countries venture further and further out into the solar system, they'll bring their own laws, policies, regulations, and sanctions with them uh, out of convenience, mostly. And what's going to be acceptable behavior, for example, at a Bechdel deep space construction site Maybe a serious crime at an Israeli settlement community. Uh, so there's a lot of behaviors that just don't fit in one category that would fit in another. I'm concerned that uh, formal policy agreements made today on Earth may not uh, have as much weight or relevance in space uh, in the frontier in the future. Uh, I guess my view is that space treaties that were written from today's altruistic Earth point of view and, and not from tomorrow's pragmatic space point of view. If we can't regulate human uh, selfish behavior on Earth, then space most likely isn't going to be much different. That's kind of my cynicism about that topic. Final question. Is there a particular character or series from science fiction that you find particularly inspiring as you look to the future of the cosmos economy? Hmm. Well... Hmm. You know, there's several books that come to mind. Uh, one book is uh, Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut, which is the first book he wrote. And it's kind of a, uh, a dystopian satire. Uh, and and, and that, that stays with me. But I think, I think the book that, that uh, really kind of hits home for me uh, in the context of what we're talking about today is a book that was written in the early 50s by um, Frederick Pohl called The Space Merchants. Right. And uh, and the the story arc of that is that there's an advertising copywriter who's been assigned an ad campaign that would attract colonists to Venus. But along the way, he's inevitably made a lot of enemies and uh, through a whole bunch of plot twists and turns and so forth. He's drugged and and kidnapped and and winds up in Antarctica (laughs) and uh, has to fight his way back to the civilized world uh, and his former status. It's it's really a sat- satiristic swipe at uh, commercialism and the power of media manipulation, and it's a it's a fun read. And even though it's a little dated, it still holds up today. Uh, and it's an enjoyable read. I would recommend it. Space it sounds Earth. like uh, it sounds like uh, quite a twist on Mad Men, um, <laughs> as you describe it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine Don Draper on Venus, but you know, uh, there are a lot of situations in that series you couldn't have imagined until they unfolded. Jack, as we go to wrap up here, can you tell us a little bit more about your book, The Cosmos Economy, when it's coming out and where we can get it? Yeah, well, Rich, uh, my editor tells me the book's going to be released in January. And so I'm I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that everything works out as, as promised. It'll first come out as an e-version and then as a... Uh, as a hard copy version uh, in January. Uh, if there's a little bit of a delay, I'll let you know. But certainly you can get it uh, through my website, which is cosmoseconomy.com. 
but also through Springer, who's the publisher. So, um, you know, uh, I'll give you more information as I find it, but I, it's going to be out there. And, and I really encourage people to read it and comment back to me about what they think about it. Well, we at Space Foundation will be happy to share that because we've enjoyed our association with you, Jack. You've been uh, a source of inspiration and counsel on a lot of different issues. And as the space economy continues to mature and we move towards that cosmos economy you described, uh, we're going to be talking to you a whole lot more. Jack, thank you very much for your time. We are very grateful for you sharing your time and your talent and your expertise with us here on the Space for You podcast. Rich, you're very generous with your comments. Thank you. I've enjoyed this a lot. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Jack. And with that, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space for You podcast. Again, our thanks to Dr. Jack Gregg, the author of the forthcoming book called The Cosmos Economy. Please follow us on social media via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And of course, all of our Space Foundation websites, which are all headquartered out of spacefoundation.org. We've got a lot of exciting things planned for 2021. We expect this coming year to be as promising and full of potential as 2020 was for the space community. There's a lot of good things that are going to be happening, and we look forward to sharing that because at the Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thank you for listening.